Please turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. We'll be back in chapter 3 this evening with verses 12 through 16. Give ear now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word. Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of our God abides forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Life in a fallen world is hard. And to live as a Christian in a fallen world is harder still. But your word promises that it is worth it. Would you send your spirit and work through your word preached that it might bring forth fruit in our lives, that your precious people would be strengthened to press on. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. In the 1970s, a talented young musician took the metaphorical midnight train going anywhere. He was chasing his dreams of being a famous rock and roll star, and he found his way to Hollywood. And while there, he gained plenty of experience playing in small venues, but he wasn't seeing that success that he had hoped for. After a few years, the young man, whose name was Steve Kane, was very close to calling it quits. First, he called his father, and after that phone call, he decided to press on because his dad had told him, don't stop believing, and so Cain stuck with it. He persevered, and in his case, it worked out. He wound up joining the famous rock and roll band Journey and co-writing their 1981 hit named after his father's advice, don't stop believing. And this song was so successful that it's really better described as an anthem than a song. And in its over four decades since release, it has served as the inspiration for millions who chase similar dreams of fortune and fame. I wonder if you have ever pursued similar dreams. Maybe not in the music world, but in in some form of, of, of entertainment. Perhaps you know someone who has chased a dream like that. And they're willing to sacrifice and give up a lot. Something like that, something analogous to that, is what Paul has in mind when he says twice in our text that we are to press on. So far in Philippians, Paul has given these Christians many exhortations and many encouragements. That is to say, uh, he's given them many commands and then many consolations. Look back, for example, to chapter 2 and verse 12, where he says that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And then he gives the encouragement, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
And the pattern goes on with this exhortation to do all of this without grumbling. Chapter 2, verse 14. While encouraging them at the same time in the very next verse that they can because they are children of God. Exhorting us to count all of our accomplishments apart from Christ as rubbish in chapter 3, verse 8. And encouraging us that our true righteousness comes from God and is received by faith in Christ Jesus. And this morning, we picked up from there. and we, we looked at Paul's call, his exhortation that we are to know Christ. That we are to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And that we are to know Christ by sharing in his sufferings. And in light of such a daunting call, some may be tempted to walk away and wonder, do I know him at all? Am I a Christian at all? And Paul, being pastorally sensitive to that, wants to assure them. He wants to comfort them with this passage that is our text tonight. It's as if he's saying, I know the Christian life is hard. And friends, believe me, Paul knew that the Christian life was hard. But don't give up. It's a life of suffering and trial. It's rigorous and demanding, but it's worth it. And so you need to press on. As he wrote in Romans chapter 8, 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And Paul's language beginning in verse 4 of chapter 3 is, is largely autobiographical. We see him using first-person singular uh, descriptions, I, me, my, 20 times between verses 4 and 14, the thrust of which is that he is setting himself up as this example to be followed. This is a common convention for the apostle to employ. He wants his readers to imitate him. He says in 1 Corinthians 11, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And again, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. One of my seminary professors, uh, Dr. Bob Kara, spoke of Paul's theology of imitation this way. He says, Paul portrays himself as one whom his readers are to imitate. In the apostles' view, this imitation of himself is related to imitation of Christ. However, this does not alter the fact that Paul wants others to imitate him. All Christians, and especially leaders, should be models who set an example for others to follow. Specifically, Paul wants us to imitate his perseverance. Remember that Paul is writing this letter from a Roman prison. He's awaiting the verdict of his life. Will he live or will he die? That famous verse, for me to live as Christ, to die is gain, that's the background of that. He's awaiting to find out the verdict on his life. And so he wants us to imitate his drive to press on even in the most dire of circumstances. In our, in our passage this evening, Paul will call us to imitate him in three ways. Firstly, following his example. Secondly, adopting his motivation. And finally, pressing on by the same means that he does. You might outline it this way. Uh, verses 12 to 14 provide us Paul's example. Verses 12 to 14 also provide for us Paul's motivation. And then verses 15 and 16 provide Paul's method, his ways of pressing on. 
So firstly, let's look at how to press on. Paul begins by telling us how to press on with a display of great humility. Look at verse 12 again. He begins, not that I have already obtained it or am already perfect. Then to be clear, he says again in verse 13, I do not consider that I have made it my own. Context tells us that what he has yet to obtain, what is not yet his, is perfection. That perfection that comes from the resurrection from the dead, which we spoke of at length this morning. Some speculate that he may be dealing with some false teaching here that would suggest that it's possible to obtain Christian perfectionism in this life. Maybe he is, maybe he's not. If he is, though, this would be a great refutation of it, because if Paul has not attained Christian perfectionism, you will not either. But Paul's point, what he wants to get across one way or another, is so forceful that he states it three times. He has not arrived yet. And the first thing that comes to mind then, if we're seeking to apply this, is that we too need to be humble when we're exhorting and encouraging one another. It's commonly suggest, and tragically, sometimes rightly so, that Christians can be a self-righteous people, or at least that we can come across that way, that we can present ourselves as holier than thou, so the expression goes. And it, it's Paul's example here to show us that that ought not to be the case. Again, I labor that he stresses three times, I'm not there yet. Well, sure, it's true that there are some people that no matter how carefully you choose your words, no matter how gracious you are, if you're telling them that they are wrong and they need to repent and believe the gospel, they will choose to hear you as arrogant. That's true. But we want to do our best to make sure we give them no legitimate grounds to make that charge. I love the words of Paul in Romans 12 and verse 18 where he says, If possible, so far as it lies in you, live peaceably with all men. And I love that because he's acknowledging up front, it may not always be possible, but do not let it be impossible because of you. One way to do that is to, in our approach to others, remember that they're not the only ones in need of growth and godliness. The great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, the preacher who neglects to preach to himself has forgotten a very important part of his audience. He who never in his silent privacy speaketh a word to his own soul doth not know where to begin his preaching. We must first address our own soul. And if we can move that by the word we utter, we may hope to have power with the souls of others. Now, surely there Spurgeon is a preacher talking to preachers about preaching. I understand that. But it's applicable to all of us. We all need to cultivate this humility. And that leads me to a second note about Paul's humility. Not only does it cause him to not put up this facade that he's already perfect, but his humility also does not prevent him from addressing sin that needs to be addressed. As one commentator put it, Paul does not hesitate to put himself out front. It is part of his calling as an apostle to give a lead to the church, and he has a sturdy confidence that the life he has been enabled to live is not only exemplary, but normative. Yet at the same time, he speaks as a brother to brethren with a gentle grace. And this line is more difficult to walk than it may sound. 
And yet it is essential that we would pursue it with intentionality. We need to walk as those who are humbled by our, on, our own ongoing need for repentance and faith, but also loving our brothers and sisters enough to call them to that same repentance and faith. Having seen then his humility, we'll now turn our attention to the other thing that Paul wants us to imitate, and that's his persistence. And this is perhaps the chief trait that Paul is set forth as a model of. Twice in this passage, he tells us, I press on. And this is a fascinating wordplay in the Greek, because the word that he uses for press on is the same word that he used earlier in the passage in verse 6 when he describes his level of zeal as to that which would persecute the church. That's the same word. The word that's underlying persecute there is the same word underlying press on here. And it's as if he's saying, I I moved from breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord to being willing to endure all things for their sake. That the word press on, it's, it's saying that his zeal that used to burn for his own glory, his own thoughts, his own wisdom has now been turned around and is focused on attaining Christ. The word means to move rapidly and decisively towards an object. The combination of press on and make it my own actually occurs in other places in the Bible as well as other literature from this time to depict an aggressive pursuit of something and an overtaking of it. The language suggests that he has this all-consuming desire. It's a laser-like, persistent, singular focus in his life. If you had the occasion to watch the uh, documentary that was recently put out on the, on the 90s Chicago Bulls, you know that Michael Jordan, for 10 years of his life, all he did was basketball. Eat, sleep, drink, breathe, all of it. All basketball. Why? Because that's the level of pursuit and desire that's needed to achieve success at the highest level. And that's why Paul says, next in our passage, that there is just one thing I do. This one thing I do. And you may be tempted to say, well, Paul, you surely do more than one thing. You preach. You write letters. You pray for us. You build tents on the side. Paul says, no. No. It's only one thing. It's only one thing. Everything in his life is about Christ. For the Apostle Paul, it's not as if he has a a, a list of priorities in his life of which Christ is the top of the list. So it's it's not like number one is Jesus and then number two is my family and number three is my work and number four is my friends and on down the list we go. No, the list is one item, Christ. And then every person, every situation, every occasion in his life is viewed through that lens. How do I glorify and honor Christ in my ministry to this person? in my service to this individual, in my exercising of this gift? How do I glorify Christ? And it's the same for us. Our marriages are not about our spouse. Our marriages are about Christ. Husbands are to love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives are to honor your husbands as the church is to honor Christ. Parents are to raise their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And children, this is for you too. You're to honor your parents in the Lord, for this is right. 
Christ is the thing that governs all of our relationships, all aspects of our life. And this extends even to our vocations, to our jobs, where we are told that we are to work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, Colossians 3, 23 to 24. And even down to the most mundane facets of our life, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of Christ. And I'm laboring this point so that we would see that this call to press on is all-encompassing. We must never take our eye off of that goal of honoring Christ. And there is a lot of ways that we could apply this. But Paul actually illustrates two. And so we'll stick with what he said. First, he says that we are to forget what lies behind in verse 13. And he's not speaking of forgetting in terms of pretending it didn't happen or some inability to recall the past. We, we know that it's not that because, again, early in this chapter, he gives us his autobiography of all the things that he did in the past, all the things he trusted. And it's not inability to recall. What he means by forgetting what lies behind is, is pushing any and all distractions out of his mind. Letting go of anything that would make him content or cause him to let up in his pressing on. Ralph Martin describes it this way. It's not simply to obliterate from the mind. It is rather the opposite of remembering. Paul intends to forget his past in this sense. He will not regard it as having any bearing or influence upon his present spiritual outlook or conduct. He He refuses to be satisfied or content with his current knowledge of Christ. He he refuses to rest on his laurels, as it were. He he wants more. And this is the attitude that we're all to be cultivating, an, an insatiable desire to know our Lord more. And the good news that I have for you tonight is that as you cultivate that desire, I assure you, that your desire to know him more will never exceed what there is to be known about him. He is an inexhaustible fount of glory and honor and wisdom and things to prize. Not only by forgetting what lies behind, he also moves on in verse 13 and says, straining forward to what lies ahead. That word, straining forward, it, it means to exert oneself to the uttermost. That is, not only will I give it my all, not only will I give it my best, I will give it everything that I have. If this were a sports analogy, we would say that Paul desires to leave it all on the field, not at the end of the game, but on every single play. That's how consumed he was. He's not just running hard after the prize, he's, he's running hard with his arms outreached eager to lay hold of it. If the Christian life is a race, as his metaphors are suggesting here, Paul intends to break the tape with his chest, as it were, running hard after it, not losing sight of the goal. It's so easy. It's so easy to lose sight of the goal. In August of 1954, In the British Empire Games, there was a famous head-to-head race that was marketed as the Miracle Mile. 
And it was being run by Roger Bannister and John Landy, who were at the time the only two runners in the world who could run a mile in under four minutes. On the final lap, the two runners were dead even and showing no signs of slowing down. But then suddenly, Landy didn't hear Bannister's foot just behind him anymore. And he looked back. And that one brief lapse of concentration would be played times without end in replays. Because what happened is Bannister shot forward and won the race that had been neck and neck to that point by five yards. And this kind of thing can happen to us spiritually as well. If we fail to forget what lies behind and strain forward, if we want to know the victory of faith, we must keep our eyes on the ball and press on. And so I ask, how is it with your persistence this evening? Are you straining forward? Every Christian ought to have an area in their life that they're working on. A spiritual discipline they're seeking to cultivate. A a doctrine they're seeking to understand. A sin that they're strategically mortifying. Faith is not simply a decision in the past or a static state of existence. Faith is running the race, straining toward what lies ahead. And Paul models that for us well. He's modeled proper humility. He's modeled proper persistence. And what makes these things proper is ultimately the motivation that they flow from. And it will not surprise you to know that the motivation that Paul uh, runs from and the motivation that I'm commending to you tonight is none other than the Lord Jesus himself. And we'll focus our attention on two things about our Lord. One is something that Jesus has done, and the second thing is something that Jesus will do. First, look back at verse 12 with me. He says, I press on to make him my own, and he gives the motivation, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. While we may not have the same dramatic story that the Apostle Paul does, on his way to Damascus, light shines from heaven, audible voice from the Lord, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You may not have that experience in your life. But ultimately, we have all been made Christ's own in the exact same way as Paul. And it begins in eternity past. Our Lord says in Jeremiah 31.3, I have loved you with an everlasting love. God has loved you longer than you have existed, dear believer. And he promised before you were born that he would redeem you from your sins that deserved death. And he has been faithful to that promise, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. Dear child of God, your heavenly Father loves you and has made you one with Christ by the power of his Spirit. And not only he, but your Lord Jesus, he loved you and gave himself for you, Galatians 2.20. And then he seals that redemption to you in the outpouring of his Holy Spirit, who gives you faith that you might receive the grace of God. And if that is your story, and that is your song, and I pray that it is, then it is your duty to press on, worshiping your Savior all the day long, because he died to make us his own. It is only right that we would live for him. 
second motivation that Paul gives us in verse 14 uh, is, if you'll look at it with me, I press on toward the goal. For what? For the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Perhaps you grew up a sports fan and you fantasized about getting the call that you had been drafted to play for your favorite team. Or maybe you you remember the experience of, of checking the mail every day for weeks on end, hoping to get that letter that said, accepted into your number one school. Or perhaps you just interviewed for your dream job and, and you're waiting to get the call that says, I'd like to make you an offer. We all know what it's like to be waiting for a call. And there's nothing wrong with waiting for those calls. They all in their place are good things to hope for. That's fine. Ultimately, though, there is only one goal. There is no other prize than this, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. There is no other prize that can compete with this because the upward call of God in Christ Jesus is the call to go home. It's the call to enter into eternal glory. And if you are a Christian, that call will come. Either when your mortal life ends or when he returns, but it will come. Because it's no ordinary call. It may be better thought of as a a divine summons that cannot be revoked. And what a glorious day that will be for you when you get the call. J.A. Motier describes it this way. Suddenly, the earthly scene with all its strivings, sufferings, and sacrifices is suffused with heavenly glory. One scriptural picture after another fills and elevates the mind, hearing the Lord's own, well done, thou good and faithful servant. The crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. The the privilege above all that that his servants should worship him, see his face and and have his name written on their foreheads, the blood-cleansed robes, and the unending presence of the Lord. That is the goal. That is the prize. And Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And I will come again, and I will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. And and what that means, believer, that that passage rocked my world the first time I read it, because it it, it means that, that he's coming for you personally, specifically. Yes, all of us, but also you. And in light of that blessed assurance, how could we do anything but press on with that as our motivating goal? That's the motivation. Christ has saved us, making us his own, and now we await for him to call us heavenward and bring us home. And so we press on as Paul has laid his example before us. Now we're entering in our final point to consider. How do we do this? What means are we to employ as we press on in this pilgrim march? Paul gives us two, and we'll look at them both. I want you to notice at the outset that these verses 15 and 16 that we're about to look at briefly, all of that I, me, my language that we spoke of earlier, it's all gone. And it's turned into us. And the significance is that 
No longer is Paul implicitly putting himself forth as an example to be followed, but he's explicitly saying we all need to make use of these things. First, Paul says, let those of us who are mature think this way. It is essential that the Christian be pursuing maturity, specifically with respect to our thinking. By thinking here, more is meant than doctrinal knowledge, though that's certainly included. But maturity thinking pertains more broadly to the whole of life. The word that Paul uses here is actually the same word our passage earlier translated as perfect. And he may be speaking a little tongue-in-cheek, saying, well, well, I'm not perfect, but those who are perfect will think this way. He might be doing that. Nonetheless, the, the point is that a sure sign of your sanctification... A sure sign of your growth in Christ is that you are being transformed by the renewing of your mind. That sanctification is not only in what you do or how you behave, but it's in your overall approach to life. Because sin has corrupted our thoughts, our redemption will necessarily cause us to think differently. And Paul gives us this really interesting caveat, and if in anything you think otherwise... God will reveal that to you also. Paul is confident that no matter what your current state of things may be, that God loves his church. He loves those reading this letter, and he will work in them. And therefore, even in the face of setbacks, he can labor with confidence, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. The second exhortation he gives him is found in verse 16. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. What Paul is saying here is that just like him, none of us are perfect. I hope that's not a shock for you to hear. None of of us have attained perfect spiritual maturity. None of us know Christ fully as we ought. And yet, there is some level of spiritual maturity that you have attained. There is some level of the knowledge of Christ that you have obtained. Paul would say elsewhere, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. So yes, it will get better, but you do have something now. We have some knowledge of Christ and of his grace now, and to that we must hold true. He's telling us to press on in terms of faithfulness. The verb hold true means to be in line with a person or thing that's considered as a standard for one's conduct. And I know that you as good Reformed Presbyterians know that the only ultimate standard for faith and practice, the only ultimate standard for our conduct is the Word of God. That as we read our Bibles we'll notice that there are three particular means by which Christ communicates himself to us. They are his ordinary means of grace. The word of God, read and preached, the sacraments rightly administered, and the prayers of the saints. These are the means by which God bestows his grace on us. He has bestowed them faithfully so far, and he will bestow them on us by his grace leading us home. First of all, there's the Bible. Men, faithfulness in this as well as all things starts with you. 
Whether you are an elder in this church or a father and husband in the home, you have the duty to set the spiritual climate for those who are under your care. And part of that means making time to read the Bible personally with those whom you are called to watch over. And while this may be especially directed at those in leadership, it is not exclusively directed to them. This is a call for all of us. We all need to give ourselves to knowing Christ through his word, to hold true to what we've attained in this book. Because as the author of Hebrews says, the word of God is living and active. Do you believe that? Then take up and read. And you say, Pastor Early, it's almost August, and I've completely fallen off the rails on my Bible reading plan. I don't care. Take up and read. And don't grow weary in well-doing. Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Oh, the strength that we would have to press on in our lives if we would give ourselves to the faithful ministry of the reading of God's word. Next, of course, is the sacraments, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. And in his treatise on baptism, Martin Luther would speak of remembering his baptism, both in times of doubt and times of temptation. Remembering that he was a baptized Christian, and therefore, he had no business living life like the world, because he belonged to God and his church, and so he used his baptism as a motivation to press on in the faith. And then there's the Lord's Supper, which we observe this morning, where Christ gives us strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow, as he's pointing us in the supper to the coming wedding supper of the Lamb, when we will dine with him in glory. And until then, we are to press on. And then there's prayer. God speaks to us in his word. We hear him. God shows his blessings to us in the sacraments. We, we see. And then he gives us prayer that we might speak back to him. And this is the one that gives us the most trouble as far as consistency is concerned. I suspect that the leading cause of spiritual atrophy in the church today is lack of prayer. Though I will say that I was greatly encouraged by the prayer meeting this morning before the worship service. You have strong men of prayer in this church. But if you're one who is not sure about how to grow in your prayer life, there are a ton of great resources. There are several collections of old Puritan prayers, all good. But if I could recommend one, it would be A Way to Pray by Matthew Henry. It's a collection of prayers that Henry compiled. He, he took a common prayer guide for things that Christian ought to, Christians ought to pray for, prayers of praise and petition and thanksgiving and confession, etc. And what he did is he just wrote Bible verses from memory that corresponded to that and organized them into prayer so that when you're praying that way, you're, you're asking God to do what he's already promised that he would. You're, you're praying God's promises back to him, and that is a prayer that you can be confident in. One that will help you to hold true to what you have attained in the scriptures. Or you can just pray through the passage of scripture that you're using in your daily Bible reading that day. Every passage of scripture will show you something about God, asking, asking him to grow you in the things that he's commanded, 
asking him to help you repent of the sins that he's rebuked in his word. He sets forth this character and you can pray that he would mold you to that trait that's laid forth in the passage. You can do this. Hold true to what you've attained. Press on and pray. We began this evening by talking about Steve Kane and the story behind Don't Stop Believing. And so many follow that path. And as the song says, some will win and some will lose. And and they know that. They know that they're not guaranteed anything. And yet they will put it all on the line for a fleeting shot at 15 minutes of fame. And I'm sad to say that often they will persevere through more difficulty and sacrifice more for something that is not promised and is at best temporary than many Christians will do for that which is guaranteed and eternal. Let's let that not be the case with us. If the world will work so hard for a brief fleeting thrill, how much more should the people of God chase after the promise of eternal bliss? In our passage, Paul has given us the example, he's given us the motivation, and he's pointed us to the resources. Why should we not, by God's grace, fight as the saints who nobly fought of old and win with them the victor's crown of gold? And when the fight is fierce and the warfare is long, let us remember the words of Paul in Philippians 3 and pray and press on. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give thanks to you for the precious gift that is ours, that your Son, our Lord Jesus, has sent his Spirit to make us his own. And we ask that in response to that, that you would help us to press on with humility, with persistence, with wisdom and faithfulness until he returns, that where he is, we may be also. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.